Our scripture this morning comes from Matthew 9, verses 14 to 17. And it reads this. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the wines will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is the word of God. Well, thank you all for joining with us this morning and dedicating our youngest, Chloe, to the Lord. Um, We've uh, had a wonderful week with family in town, got to steal away for a few days up to New Hampshire this past week for a vacation and uh, enjoying time with with our family here and also just the, the beautiful privilege of being able to be part of a family here at Westgate, you all, and to be able to dedicate our daughter uh, with you to the Lord and raising her before him. So thank you for your love and care for us and for our family, for our children. Uh, Go ahead and keep uh, your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 9. If you're using the Pew Bible, that is on page 963. They say that if you want uh, your friends to remain your friends, that two topics you should always avoid at dinner parties are politics and religion. So far, the guests at Matthew's dinner party, which is the passage that we've been looking at in chapter 9 here, so far the guests at Matthew's dinner party have avoided neither of those topics. Last week we saw the Pharisees criticize Jesus for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, which was both a religious critique, but also a political one. Because tax collectors like Matthew, whom Jesus called to follow him, and who eventually wrote the gospel we're studying, tax collectors like Matthew were known to be in league with Rome, the foreign oppressor who occupied Israel. This morning we see another scene from that same dinner party where the disciples of John the Baptist now come to Jesus and ask him a question, this one having to do with religion. Verse 14, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? In Scripture, fasting is the discipline of going without something to uh, saying no to a certain physical appetite for a time, things like food or even sex, in order to focus our longings and our desires on God. So it's an act of expressing our dependence and our utter need for God by by setting aside that longing so that it's focused on Him. And it's something that the Jews in Jesus' day did at different times for a number of different reasons. For the Pharisees and probably John's disciples, not only did they observe the annual fast that was required uh, for the Day of Atonement, Uh, according to God's law, they fasted not just once a year, they fasted twice a week. And so that was their practice, and it was an important practice to them. And fasting like that is a religious activity. 
It's, it's something that people do because of certain religious beliefs and religious commitments. They want to talk with Jesus about religion. Now, that word religion by itself can generate all sorts of different uh, emotional responses among people. Uh, for some, it's a pretty vanilla word. It, do, it doesn't say a whole lot by itself. It's just the word that you use to describe somebody's spiritual beliefs and practices. So we ask, you know, what religion are they? Are they Christian? Are they Buddhist? Are they Hindu? And so on. Or we might hear someone say, he's a very religious person. He has very strongly held beliefs and very consistent practices that line up with those beliefs. So for some, it's just kind of a, you know, a neutral word. But for others, they love to hate on the word religion. Uh, sometimes because they're so suspicious of anything associated with it. They see it as a low-minded, outdated, primitive, judgmental thing. And so they love to hate religion. But even religious people love to hate on the word religion. Uh, you know, we want to be spiritual. We want to be known as spiritual. We don't always want to be known as religious, though. Uh, you know, we talk about Christianity as a relationship, but not a religion. You hear that phrase sometimes. We watch YouTube videos about how Jesus hates religion. And if by religion we mean a self-righteous hypocrisy that's all about keeping rules and putting on a show to impress others and win God's favor, the kind of system and behavior that we saw last week with the Pharisees, then yes, If that's what you mean by religion, Jesus hates that. But we have to be a little bit more careful with our words. Because by itself, the word religion is quite neutral. Uh, Of the six or so times it's used in our English Bibles, uh, the word religion is used both positively and negatively. So a religious command or activity or institution is not a bad thing just because it's a command or an activity or an institution. In fact... As one uh, pastor and author illustrates, Jesus was a very religious person. Quote, he went to services at the synagogue. He observed Jewish holy days. He did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He founded the church. He established church discipline. He instituted a ritual meal. He told his disciples to baptize people and to teach others to obey everything that he commanded. He insisted that people believe in him and believe certain things about him. So when it comes to the question of religion and and our religious practices, it's not so simple as to say, well, just stop being religious and start following Jesus. We like That's a catchy phrase, and it works good on a bumper sticker, but it doesn't quite capture the reality of the subject we're dealing with. We all have religious practices, and Jesus even commands some of them. So when you pray, or when we gather together like this, or when we sing, or or when we open God's Word, when we dedicate a child, when we get baptized, or, or any number of different activities, those are all religious activities. They come from certain beliefs about who God is, what he's like, and what it means to follow him. And so the question is, which religious activities actually honor Jesus? Which ones reflect the truth of who he is in his kingdom? Religious activities ought to reflect spiritual realities. 
religious activities, things we do in the name of God and in order to seek Him, ought to reflect spiritual realities, the truth of who God is and what He's doing. They should flow from and point back to those spiritual realities, not ignore them or replace them, which is what often happens when we talk about this subject. And what Jesus is helping us to understand in Matthew 9 this morning is that he and his kingdom are the new spiritual reality around which every religious practice should revolve. He is the spiritual reality, Jesus and his kingdom. And that ought to shape all our religious activities from now on. So let's pray and let's seek God to to see and hear what is it he has to say to us and, and how we go about doing so many things we associate with Christianity or religion. Lord, we do want to hear from you this morning. That is the goal. We thank you that you've given us your word, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear it this morning and eyes to see you and hearts, Lord, that are ready to be transformed by your word. Lord, uh, with this subject, um, no doubt there is a wide uh, array of different thoughts and questions and reactions that come up when we raise the question of religion. I pray, God, that your, by your spirit, by your word, you would help us see those things clearly this morning as they make sense in light of Jesus. That's our prayer, God. We ask it in his name. Amen. Let's look at verse 14 together again. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So the story begins with John's disciples asking a very honest question of Jesus. Why do our religious practices and the practices of the Pharisees, why are they so different from the way you guys are going about doing religious things? Why don't you fast like we do? And Jesus responds to this question, not surprisingly, with another question. In verse 15, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? It's kind of a strange question to ask. And there's really two questions embedded within it. Who is Jesus and what time is it? If you want to understand why our religious practices take the shape we do, you need to know who I am and you need to know what time it is. Jesus is the bridegroom. And he's still with his people. So what does that mean? Well, the first question, who is Jesus? He calls himself the bridegroom here. We don't use that word as often. We shortened it and usually just say the word groom. So he's the groom who's getting married to the bride. That's the picture. And it's more than just a picture. Remember who is asking Jesus these questions right now. It's the followers of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one whom God sent ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for his ministry and his kingdom. And John the Baptist described his own ministry in John 3, 28 through 30, like this. He said to the crowds there, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. 
and it is now complete. He, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. Some people had been concerned that John the Baptist's ministry was beginning to become eclipsed by Jesus' ministry. He was becoming more popular. But in John's analogy here, he's just a groomsman. Jesus is the groom. The groom had come to collect his bride, and that brought joy to John's heart. His role was done. His job was to point people to the groom. And now that the groom was here, he could just kind of fade into the background. If you think about it, how strange would it be if you attended a wedding, and after the service was over and the wedding party exited, everybody threw rice and escorted the groomsmen down the stairs to the car, leaving the bride and the groom standing by themselves at the top of the stairs. It would be kind of awkward and and just weird. So that's what John is saying here. If you celebrate me, that's like celebrating the groomsmen. The groom is the real deal. He's what it's all about. The groom who is collecting his bride. Jesus is the groom. John is just a groomsman. He's just a friend of the groom. And Jesus affirms John's words right here in our passage in Matthew. That Jesus is the groom. But again, is that more than an analogy? Is that just you know, a nice metaphor? Or is there something bigger going on? This metaphor of the bridegroom actually comes from the Old Testament promises of God who is going to come and rescue his wayward bride, Israel. We see it several places, but one of the most prominent is in Isaiah 54, where God promises to rebuild Jerusalem and to bring her children, the people of Israel, back to her. So Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 6, God says to his people, Do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth. And remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. So God promises to restore and rescue and redeem Israel from her sin, to reconcile her to himself, to make her again his cherished bride, even though she committed spiritual adultery with the foreign gods of the surrounding nations. And what's striking here, though, in Isaiah 54, and really any time this bridegroom analogy is used, is that the groom in the Old Testament is God himself. God himself And so John the Baptist's ministry was letting people know that the bridegroom had come in the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? How we think about our religious practices requires answering that question. And the way he answers it here is that he is God in the flesh. Come down from heaven to rescue his people from their sin. He's the one who lived the life that we were supposed to live but couldn't who died the death that we deserved because of our sin so that we don't have to. He is God's faithful son, our king and our savior. He is the groom who provides for and protects his bride with complete faithfulness, patience, 
love, grace, like no human husband can. He's the long-awaited king. He is the center of the entire story of God's redemption. And so all of our religious activities ought to flow from and point us back to him. He's the king. So that's who he is. But the second question in his question is, what time is it? Uh, Look again at, at verse 15 with me. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is still with them? The time will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them, then they will fast. So understanding what our worship should look like depends not just on knowing who Jesus is, but what time it is. In other words, is he still with his people bodily or not? For Jesus' disciples, his presence with them meant that, that a religious activity like fasting, which was often associated with grief and mourning and pleading before God because things are not right in the world, a religious activity like fasting would have been completely out of place while the groom was standing right with them. Uh, fasting, again, is often associated with grieving, and a wedding is no place to act like a funeral. So, as as Doug O'Donnell describes, Jesus claims that just as it would be unnatural, rude, selfish, and even insulting to fast at somebody's wedding, okay, you show up for the reception, and no soup, sorry, no bread, no meat, no cake for me, I'm fasting here, it would just be rude. So it would be morally wrong and irreligious for Jesus' disciples not to celebrate the appearance of the bridegroom. It's the wrong time. So the problem's not with fasting in this case, but the timing. Jesus is still with them in, his, in their presence, which means it's time to rejoice. And their religious activities ought to reflect the joy of his presence with them. And yet, there will come a time, Jesus says, when the bridegroom will be taken away from the guests. And then they will mourn. Then they will grieve. Then they will fast. And as Jesus says that, his words echo another passage in Isaiah, just the chapter right before the one we read from a moment ago. Isaiah 53, and the servant who suffers in place of God's people. Isaiah 53, 8 says, By oppression and judgment, he, this servant, was taken away. Hear the echo of Jesus' words. There will come a time when the bridegroom will be taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, for the sin of my people, he was stricken. He was cut down. There will come a time when Jesus would be taken away. He knew where his earthly ministry was headed. He knew it was headed to the cross. That's what he came to do. That's the price that he willingly paid to rescue God's people, to establish God's kingdom. And that reminds us, as we think about Jesus' presence and and the kingdom he's establishing, that there is an already and a not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. So Jesus already began it in this ministry that we're reading of in Matthew's gospel. He already inaugurated it with his life, his death, and his resurrection, that the kingdom of God has been born. Sin, evil, and death have already met their match in the cross. 
Jesus has already dealt with them and conquered them decisively. But his kingdom will not be completed or consummated, as we put it, until he returns. Which means that whereas sin and death and evil have been stripped of their power, we still live with their presence every day while we wait for Christ's return. So there's an already, the battle, the victory, the war has already been won, but there's a not yet. We're waiting for Jesus to return and to finally uh, put all of his enemies under his feet. And that's the time that we live in today. See, we live in a different time than the disciples in our passage. We live in the time between the cross and the new creation. We live in the meantime between those two. And in this in-between time, there will be causes of celebration, like with what the disciples were experiencing, but there will also be causes for mourning and grief. And, And so who Jesus is and what time it is, we need to expect both joy and sorrow as we live out our days in this meantime. Jesus, God, is still with us by his Spirit. God still reigns victorious over everything. He is still our faithful husband and our provider. We still celebrate his glory and his goodness. There's much to be thankful for and to celebrate, but the world is still broken. Our relationships still get messed up by our selfishness and our sin. Our hearts are still blinded by our own sin at times. And this world still rages against Jesus and will continue to do so until he returns. And so we live in this in-between time. And our religious practices will reflect that tension and that reality. So what's at stake in understanding who Jesus is and what time it is? What does it really matter when it comes to our religious activities. Well, as we said at the beginning, these activities, call them Christian activities. Reli- you know, what, whatever word you put there isn't that important to me. These activities ought to reflect spiritual realities, the truth of who God is and what he's doing. So they should flow from and point back to those realities, not ignore those realities or replace them, which we're prone to do. And again, according to Jesus in this passage, he and his kingdom are the new spiritual reality that ought to shape all of our religious activities from now on. If we miss that, we miss the whole point of religion. We miss the whole point of why anybody would do anything associated with Christianity or religious activity. If we miss the center of who Jesus is and what he's done, what he's doing. And that's what he's after with the two illustrations he uses in verses 16 and 17. So look at those verses with me. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, to be honest, I have always scratched my head at what in the world that means. And I've read a lot of different ideas on what in the world it means, and none of them, you know, are entirely satisfying, and partly because we don't do a whole lot of patching of clothing anymore, so the analogies get a little bit lost on us. Um, We're we're a little bit more used to wine bottles than we are wineskins. And, uh, you know, 
have to look up what in the world is a wineskin. You know, it's actually the bladder of an animal, which sounds disgusting. But they clean it and do all the, what they need to do. But you pour the unfermented wine into it. And as it ferments, it stretches and it expands. And so it's got to have some flexibility to it or you're going to have a mess on your hands. If you use an old wineskin that's already been stretched out and you put unfermented wine into it, you're going to lose both the skin and the wine. That's the picture here. But these two illustrations are really saying the same thing when you read them in the context of the question of religious practice like fasting. The garment and the wineskin here represent religious activity, things like fasting or giving alms or praying or any number of things. The patch and the new wine represent the new spiritual reality that these activities must conform to, namely Jesus. So Jesus and his kingdom are the new wine, and our religious activities need to conform to him, otherwise we're going to have a mess on our hands. Jesus is the patch. We must conform our religious activities to him, not the other way around. You don't fit Jesus into your preferred religious practices. Uh, you know, whether you read about this new prayer posture in a yoga magazine or something like that, or whether there's some, you know, religious activity you've always done all of your life and it's really meaningful, but you find out it doesn't really line up with Jesus, you don't fit Jesus into your religion. Jesus trumps your religion. You revolve and conform your religion to him. That's the point. Because if you don't, and your religious practice doesn't fit the spiritual reality that it's supposed to reflect, you end up losing both. That's what's at stake. And that's what was rather hard to swallow for the Pharisees and for John's disciples, how Jesus trumps their religion. What they had to come to terms with was that you can't have the old covenant of ancient Judaism and Jesus now that Jesus has come, bringing a new covenant in his blood. So the religious structures of ancient Israel that had served them well and played an important role for centuries under that old covenant, that wineskin was now stretched out. Moreover, all of those religious structures were pointing forward to Jesus anyway. He was the whole point that they directed people to. And now that he's come to continue to operate in all of the old religious structures of ancient Judaism, so the sacrifices, the temple, the food laws, the separatism, and so on, that would be to miss the spiritual reality that they were meant to point to leaving you with a hollow, a hollow and empty religion, a torn garment, a broken wineskin. That was hard for the Pharisees to swallow. And it can be pretty hard for us to swallow at times too when we come to realize that some of our religious practices might not actually come from or point back to Jesus or when we come to realize that some of the practices that do but seem kind of awkward or weird to us it's something Jesus actually calls us to participate in. You know, baptism, I don't want to get my hair wet in front of everybody. Well, it's something Jesus calls his people to and so on. So what should our religious activities look like while we live out our days in this meantime between the cross and the new creation? Can we say anything more specific than we should expect both joy and sorrow? I think we can. Uh, and... 
it's an important question because the reality is, even for as secular as New England has become in recent years, the Apostle Paul could walk through our city and look around and say the same thing he said in Athens back in Acts 17. I see that you are a very religious people. It may no longer be predominantly Christian, but spirituality is very popular today. From New Age mysticism to a growing Muslim population to cultural Judaism to widespread nominal Catholicism to the cult of Oprah, the high priestess of the self-help industry, to the thousands of pilgrims who flock for regular worship services at Fenway Park. We are a very religious people. Even within the church, we find a dizzying array of religious options. I mean, you scroll the pages on Amazon at all of the new books that uh, guarantee some sort of spiritual breakthrough or, or promise some sort of you know, reclaiming some old practice of, of being able to know Jesus better or introducing some new method for getting to know God better. It's just, it's a supermarket. And then you add to that the substantial differences among some of the historic Christian traditions. You know, the way we worship at Westgate doesn't always look exactly the same as it might look in other congregations or other traditions. And so how do I sort through some of those things? Uh, you know, obviously, among historic Christian traditions, there's agreement on most of the basics. God is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Christ died for our sins. We should pray to God. We should obey Scripture. We should be part of a local church. But can I read the Bible, or do I have to have a pastor or a priest explain it to me? That's a religious question some people ask. What about religious habits that the Bible doesn't talk about, but that some of my friends seem to find useful or, or that maybe have been practiced for hundreds of years. Are those okay? What do I do with those? Should I only pray to God or is it okay to pray to the saints or, or to Mary or something like that? What about food regulations? Are there certain things that I can eat at this time but I have to avoid at other times and so on? These are honest questions that a lot of people ask and wrestle with. Can I work in a little New Age mysticism and meditation and so on as long as I'm trying to use it to help get to know Jesus better? Like the disciples of John again, who came to Jesus asking honest questions. These are honest questions that people ask. So how do we evaluate religious practices? Are all of them made equal? Uh, do, you, you know, do we just have to be genuine and really mean it? And then it's okay uh, do we evaluate them based on what seems to work or what's useful? And again, does it even matter? Jesus' answer in this passage, I think, not only addresses the question of fasting that John's disciples asked, I think it gives us, it points us to an ongoing principle for navigating other questions about religious activity as well. And we need to think seriously about those things. Now, I do not want to suggest for a moment, however, that I or Westgate have all of this figured out, okay? You need to hear that. Uh, the minute we begin to think we've got all of this figured out is the minute we've begun to miss the point of the gospel, that it's Jesus' righteousness that qualifies us before the Father. It's not what we do and how we make a show for him or anything like that. Nor do I 
Nor is this something that by itself would cause us to, you know, break fellowship or limit our fellowship with other churches and other Christians. And so there's going to be different answers to some of these different questions. And that doesn't always mean or you know, that we shouldn't still partner with other churches as we do. And we value the fellowship we have with other congregations, even if we answer some of these questions a little differently. Nor do we do I want to suggest that we shouldn't expect a great deal of variety in our worship expressions. When you think about the diversity of God's people, the diversity of generations, the diversity of traditions, the diversity of uh, you know, a people from every nation, language, and tribe, that's a beautifully diverse people. And we should expect, we should expect that diversity to show itself in our worship. And so I'm not saying we've got it all figured out or that we should look for a uniform, one way to go about worshiping God. And yet neither can we say that all religious activities are created equal. According to Jesus, some of them are appropriate and some of them are not. Some of them draw us closer to God. Some of them actually create distance between us and God. Some of them are means of grace through which God changes our hearts Others are means of manipulation by which we try to change God. Some of them honor God. Some of them are offensive to God. Just go back and read some of the prophets in the Old Testament and see what God had to say about some of their religious practices. So how do we navigate that supermarket of religious ideas? Well, Jesus actually gives us a twofold criteria from his own ministry. The first question, does it line up with Scripture? Does this religious activity I'm participating in, does it line up with God's word, the Bible? That's the first question. The second, does it take seriously what Jesus accomplished through the cross and resurrection? Does it take seriously what Jesus has accomplished through the cross and the resurrection? If it doesn't line up with scripture and if it doesn't take seriously What Christ has already accomplished, it's an old wineskin that will neither honor God nor help his people. No matter how traditional or how edgy and trendy it may be. So Jesus applies the first test with the Pharisees later in Matthew 15. Does it line up with scripture? Here's one example where we see Jesus applying that test. And you can flip there if you'd like. Matthew 15, 1 through 9, we'll also have it behind us on the screen. But Matthew 15, verse 1. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help might have otherwise you have, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is, is a gift devoted to God, he's not to honor his father with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Does it line up with Scripture, or is it just a bunch of rules taught by men? Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and their religious practice, saying, you know, gee, mom and dad, I know you're in need, but I kind of, I'm going to promise this to God, and so I can't help you out because look at how religious and holy I am. I'm giving this money that you need to God instead, and, and, and actually overturning God's command to honor your father and mother, Jesus rebukes them because they developed a practice that not only had no basis in Scripture, it actually stood in contradiction to Scripture, to what God had commanded. It didn't line up. So any religious activity, any religious practice that that puts human tradition or human teaching above or equal with God's word or in some way runs counter to Scripture and what it says is a faulty wineskin that neither honors God nor helps his people. And so if I can be a little bold here, whereas the practice of adding commands to Scripture like thou shalt never touch a drop of alcohol, go to movies or play cards, which was a common litmus test for generations of whether or not you were a holy spiritual person actually committed to God, whether that... Though that has become a common practice, or praying to the saints or to Mary as a co-mediator of God's grace, or the belief that, that God is only honored when a certain kind of song is sung to him, whether it's hymns or choruses or whatever, regardless of how commonplace those kinds of religious practices have become, they neither come from Scripture nor line up with Scripture. They actually contradict what God's word clearly says. And if we need to sit down over coffee at Panera and talk further about some of those examples or anything like that, I would love to, to be able to do that. Now, this isn't to say that, you know, you've got to go rifling through the Bible and find a chapter and verse for every single little thing we do in trying to serve God. For instance, there's nothing in here that says during the hot summer months you must gather for worship at 930 and when it gets a little bit cooler, then you must switch to 10.30. And if you do it a week late, you, you know, there's nothing in there like that, okay? Um, there's actually a great deal of flexibility on a lot of questions. But that we gather regularly to worship God and to encourage one another, that is commanded in Scripture. Verses like Hebrews 10.25, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And that when we gather and when we meet, we open God's word, or we pray to God, or we sing praise to him, or we celebrate what he's done through the Lord's table, or through a baptism, and so on. Those things do come from the Bible. And moreover, All of those things actually point us back to Jesus, to what he's done, to his glory, to his honor, to his fame, to his grace. Religious activities that reflect the truth of who Jesus is and what he does must line up with God's word, the Bible. That's the first test as we navigate these questions. The second test, does it take seriously what Jesus has accomplished through his cross and his resurrection? Does it take seriously what Jesus has already accomplished through his cross and resurrection? There are a lot of religious activities, even in the Bible, that we read about 
that are no longer appropriate now that Jesus has come. When Jesus stood in the temple later in Matthew 21, and he drove out the money changers and, and, and he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it, speaking of his body. Jesus declared that the entire worship system of the temple was now obsolete because he was here. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. And so to go on worshiping with those religious systems is to miss the whole point. It's to miss Jesus. So that that kind of religious worship does not take seriously what he has already accomplished through his cross and resurrection. As Hebrews 10 tells us, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The job was finished. No more atonement was necessary. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, there is a great temptation in our religious activity to live in the shadows and to miss out on the substance, as Paul puts it. Shadows like food regulations or mandating certain holy days and so on. Things that were appropriate under the old covenant for Israel but they've served their purpose and they are now too stretched out to hold the new wine of Jesus in his kingdom. So listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2. And if you don't mind, go ahead and turn there. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 1166. Again, it'll be behind us on the screen. But this is the very point Paul makes somewhat lengthily uh, here in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. There's the point again. He's the the compass, the navigation point. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority, In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul is saying, this is the new spiritual reality. This is the truth of who God is and what he's done. Therefore, when it comes to your religious activities... He continues in verse 16. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. 
Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to his rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So he lays it out. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he's accomplished once for all time through his cross and resurrection. Now, evaluate your religious practices based on that truth. And any religious activity that fails to appreciate what Christ has already finished, the full atonement of our sin, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us, new birth to new spiritual life, the forgiveness of sins, the disarming of our spiritual enemies, any religious practice that would empty Christ of his sufficiency. Therefore, trying to earn God's favor or gain his merit. Again, whether we're carrying on old traditions like penance or holy days of obligation or introducing and hijacking newer traditions like trying to use your daily time with God as a means to kind of get him to bless you. Anything that fails to... uh, base itself in the sufficiency of Christ, falls short, because it's essentially coming to God and saying, you know, thanks for what Jesus did, but it wasn't really enough. So let me add this to it. Here, here's this extra gift. Now that maybe that will make you happy and I'll get your blessing and so on. It's a religious activity that ignores the spiritual reality and then replaces it. It's a wineskin unfit for Jesus. On the contrary, a religious practice that lines up with Scripture and that takes seriously who Jesus is and what he's accomplished in the cross and resurrection does not come before God seeking to add to Jesus' work, but rather seeks to bring what Jesus has already done to bear on our everyday lives. And that is the point of religion. That's the goal of our religious practices. Every prayer, every song, every time we gather, every time we celebrate the Lord's table, every time we fast, every gift that we give, every time we love our neighbor in acts of service, every time we open up God's word to read it and to listen and to study it, the purpose in all of that is that God would take what Jesus has already accomplished on the cross and that he would bring it to bear on our everyday life. Whatever it is we're facing that day, whatever it is, whatever questions we're asking, whatever doubts or fears that, that, that are plaguing our heart, that Jesus, that God would take that gospel and that he would minister to it, minister it to us and change our lives by his grace, bringing to bear what God has already accomplished on the cross. Our religious practices must come from Jesus and point us back to Jesus. 
that we might be changed by his spirit to love him and trust him and treasure him more and more. So why do we sing? Because God is beautiful and our hearts need poetry and music to appreciate and savor his beauty. Because when our hearts are weary or depressed or distracted, we need the rest of the body to help us give voice to the things, to the burdens we bear, that we just can't come up with the words for ourselves. Why do we pray? Because through our union with Jesus, we get to call God Father. And he loves to relate to his children through prayer. Because when our life certainly, suddenly turns upside down and, and we don't know what to do and we find ourselves alone or afraid or, or discouraged or hopeless, only God is wise enough and powerful enough to accomplish his purposes, to direct our steps and to supply our needs according to the glorious riches that Christ has already given us. We pray because the work's already done and we, just, we need God to bring it to bear on our lives. Why do we open God's word? Because in the Bible, God is speaking. And if we love him, we will listen to him. Because among all the different voices that we hear day in and day out, this book is the one voice, the voice of the one who knows us the best and yet still loves us the most despite our sin because of his grace. It's the voice whose Every word proves true, and in whose words are the very words of life. Why do we fast? Because we live in the meantime. And the world doesn't work as it's supposed to. Neither is it as it will someday be when Jesus returns. And so we long for that day, even as we long for God's presence and power right here and right now. Why do we do any number of religious activities? And the list obviously can go on and on. We do it because Jesus really is king. He really is our savior. He really is our authority. He really is enough. Christ is enough. He deserves our worship and we need him more than life itself. Jesus and his kingdom are the new spiritual reality that ought to shape all our religious activities from now until when he returns. And my prayer for us is that we would see and savor him in his sufficiency and that whatever we do in seeking to honor him or know him would would look to who he is and what he's already done to bring it to bear on our lives. So let's pray together. Lord, you are the center. You are everything. Apart from you, we have absolutely nothing. And Lord, I I confess in my own heart, I am tempted to, uh, to try and find ways of manipulating your favor. I'm tempted to hijack different good things and to think, well, wow, if I do this, God's really going to be impressed with me. And I make little your cross when I do that. Lord, please forgive me. Please forgive us for all of the different ways that that we may even with good intentions try to seek you, but if we miss your son and who he is and what he's done, we miss you. 
So, Lord, may you take our lives and our hearts and conform them to you. And may you do it through your son. May you help all of our our activities, all the different ways we seek to serve you and know you and worship you and to grow. May all of those be conformed to Jesus. May we resist the temptation to fit him into our preferred practices. May we instead surrender our lives and our practices to him. And Lord, may that bear genuine fruit in our lives. God, the goal is that our hearts would be changed by you. That we would not live in fear of condemnation. That we would not live in fear of rejection of what people will say to us. That we would be free to love and to lay our lives down for our family, for our friends, for our neighbors. Because in Christ, we have a gift and an inheritance an identity that can never be taken away. And so, Lord, I pray that our faith in Christ would well up in joy and peace, not in fear and anxiety. Free us to love and serve you, Lord. I pray for uh, our ministries along those same lines. May everything we do as a congregation flow from and point back to your Son. May he be the star, the hero, not us. Lord, I pray for our upcoming uh, seminar this Saturday, Lord. Would that be the heartbeat and the message of it? May you equip us to love and serve one another in that way. I pray for our upcoming retreat to Sandy Island. Lord, would you be on display such that our hearts would be overwhelmed by your beauty and your holiness and your mercy. May it be about you and not about us. Lord, we pray for our, our ministries that are about to launch this fall. Pray for our student ministry in particular, Lord, as we search for a, a student uh, minister. Would you go before us and guide our steps and bring the right person uh, to minister to our young people, Lord, to, to walk alongside them, to help them connect with you, to connect with their parents, to connect with one another. And Lord, we pray for our missionaries, um, especially this morning for Kevin and Krista Rideout. We thank you for um, the amazing restoration work you've done at the Sahel Academy in Niger, and uh, despite the flooding that was about a year ago. And we thank you, Lord, that we'll get to spend more time with them this year as they're home on, on furlough, on home assignment. We pray that this would be a refreshing year for them uh, and, and uh, a good time of connecting with family and with friends. And Lord, we pray for, for those among us who are in need. Uh, you know, again, uh, you know the burdens that are sometimes unspoken among us, the financial strains, the relational breakdowns, uh, the anxiety, the fear. You know the cry of every heart here, Lord, and I pray that you would hear it and that you would bring healing and peace and joy. We pray for those among us who are sick, specifically battling cancer, uh, Lord, for uh, for Steve Gerber, for Mary Boy, for Bob French, for Rick Brown. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who hears these prayers, not because there's something special about us, not because we worked really hard and got our lives back together, but because Jesus is everything that we need, everything that you demand. He is our sufficiency. He is our satisfaction. He is our King. May our lives be lives of worship to you through him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.